This is Kyle Worley, and this is a summer surprise episode of Knowing Faith. I am joined today, not by my lovely colleagues and co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English, but by another lovely friend of the show, Dan Darling. Dan Darling is an award-winning writer, best-selling author of 15 books, and a leader who regularly appears on networks such as MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, CBN. He's a regular contributor to USA Today, columnist for World Magazine. He's written for The Washington Post, National Review, Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition. He hosts the weekly podcast, The Way Home. He leads the Land Center for Cultural Engagement in Dallas. He speaks at churches, conferences around the country, and he's the author of the recently released book, Agents of Grace. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on here. Huge fan of the work you guys do here on this show and uh, just delighted to to talk with you. Well, no, we're glad to have you here, Dan. Um, these uh, summer surprise episodes are fun because we don't tell the audience that we're doing anything over the summer, but they've come to just believe, to hope, uh, in the assurance of things unseen that we are going to drop some summer episodes for all their road trips. So if you're listening to this on the road to camp, you're listening to this with your family, you're listening to this as you drive on vacation or hop on a plane, we're glad you're listening. We're coming back with season 11 here at the end of August. We'll be journeying through Exodus, doing some biblical theology, tracing themes from Exodus through the rest of the story of scripture. But for this episode, I'm excited to talk with Dan. And here's why. Dan has written a book called Agents of Grace. And I have not read the thing in its entirety. I want to be honest. Uh, I have read some clips from it. But I got to tell you, Dan, I can't think of one single reason why we need a book that helps encourage grace and wisdom in an age of division. I can't, I mean, like the whole premise of your book makes no sense to me because the world I live in, it's just, everybody's gracious with one another. Uh, they're wise in the way they dialogue about big divisive issues. Everybody has a unity mindset. Why, why this book? Why now, Dan? That's what's confusing me. Yeah. Our work here is finished, right? <laughs> you know, I wrote it for a number of reasons. I mean, I, for one, you know, as, as you know, the last several years uh, have been pretty divisive and hard, I think, for Christians, yeah. you know, and this book is written really to the church. It's writ written to brothers and sisters in Christ. I've written other books that kind of talk about a Christian's posture toward the world or toward people in our communities, but this is really written to Christians, like, how do we treat each other? You know, the last several years have been very divisive. A lot of things have divided Christians, whether it's uh, approach to COVID or approach to racial tension or politics, all that stuff. And uh, really as a plea to say, hey, unity matters. You know, I think when a lot of people think Christian unity, they think a bunch of people holding hands around a campfire, mm -hmm. singing Kumbaya and some sure. weird cult ritual or something. Yeah. Or they think this kind of like, oh yeah, if we can get to it, unity would be great, you know? Mm -hmm. But- Scripture sort of commands us to work toward Christian unity. You know, it says uh, maintain unity in the spirit, is, you know, take every effort, make every effort to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. And it doesn't describe unity as sameness, that we're all the same, all the same haircut, same belief, same everything. It's actually, we're different. We disagree sometimes, but we're uh, striving together uh, for the same purpose. And so really want to explain what that is, what it isn't. What does it mean to love each other, sure. our brothers and sisters in Christ? I talk a little bit about theological triage and some other issues and topics as well. Well, let's pause on that for a second, and let me give you a softball here. So unity is a good thing. It's a, I think it's a biblical thing. It's a beneficial thing. But there are some manners of life, ways of living, even beliefs that we, we shouldn't be pursuing unity with, correct? Like, for example, like in the life of the church, it would be reasonable for somebody to say, you cannot be a part of our church if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Is that right. being 
is that is is that not pursuing unity if somebody says hey because of a matter of primary importance the uniqueness of the son of god and ex- the exclusive view of christ alone and christ alone for salvation if if you don't believe that you can't be a member of our church is that person being divisive no they're not i i think the person being divisive is the one who is um encouraging a departure from christian orthodoxy you know unity sometimes is used as a weapon again, is just weaponized, that word is weaponized to not take a position on on Christian truth and doctrine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's used to, as an excuse to cover up corruption or sure. or other other sins. You know, that that's sort of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. And in fact, I have a whole chapter on, on theological triage, and there are things that are worth fighting for, right? Sure. You know, we would say, we would call it Christian orthodoxy or doctrine. You know, these are the truths that the church has believed for 2,000 years that were handed down to us from the apostles that we can't, we have no authority to change. Uh, these are what's true and good and beautiful about about God, about what it means to follow Jesus. And so I think it's important. And in fact, Paul says to Timothy, you know, young Timothy, young pastor, church at Ephesus, Paul's saying, one of his final letters saying, stand firm in the faith. You know, mm-hmm. he, he urges him over and over the pastorals to hold on to these things. So yeah. he's saying, he's, he says to, to fight the good fight. In other words, he's saying there's a fight worth fighting. Right. Uh, Jude says that there's a, we should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. So there's a body of truth about which we can't Depart. I would put sexual ethics in, in that same tier. Sure. You know, this this sort of uh, body of truth. Paul then also says to, to Timothy in Second Timothy, avoid foolish and stupid questions. So he's saying there are things that are absolutely worth fighting for, and then there are issues and, and things that good Christians can disagree on. Yeah, well, I want to ask you real quick. You, you mentioned theological triage. We've talked about that with our listeners on the podcast. Why don't you just give a brief kind of your you know, 15 second definition of theological triage and how it can be helpful in both preserving integrity of Christian witness and preserving unity in the body. Yeah. I love talking about this. Now the term theological triage was coined, I think maybe a decade ago by, I think Dr. Moeller, Al Moeller coined the term, but it, it, it's not a new idea. Christians have been doing this sure. for all of church history. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the idea that it's kind of ranking and prioritizing what, what, issues and doctrines we cannot, we cannot budge from. What are things that Christians might disagree on? Mm -hmm. And what are, and I would say some people have one, two, and three, some people have one, two, three, and four. Quickly, I would say the first tier is that orthodoxy that we can't depart from. You know, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, Christian sexual ethics, all those things. Like, like Christians have believed this, we cannot depart from this. I think the second tier are things that Christians have disagreed about for 2000 years, you know, the mode of baptism, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Now in this, in this tier, for the most part, this is kind of how denominations are formed or church fellowships are formed. So what is a second tier issue globally in the body of Christ is often a first tier issue denominationally, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a, I'm a Baptist convictionally. We believe in credo baptism, baptism by immersion. Uh, you, you can't really be a Baptist if you don't believe that. Our PCA brothers and sisters, who I love, whose stuff I read, who I work with on so many different things, they have a different view of baptism. I couldn't be a member of their church, and they couldn't be a member of mine. That's okay. You know, this is where the denominations are formed. I actually don't believe the presence of all the denominations is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's part of the mosaic of the body of Christ. We learn from each other. But that's kind of the second tier, if you will. Sure. How churches are formed, how fellowships and denominations. Then you have... 
tertiary issues, third level, fourth level issues where even people in the same congregation might disagree, right? Like we might disagree on the age of the earth. We might disagree on, we all agree that Jesus is coming back one day. Mm-hmm. We might disagree on the exact timeline or even below that. How do we educate our kids or how do we steward our politics exactly? Those are things that people, even in the same church or congregation, even small group might disagree on. And one of the things I'm trying to say here is, first of all, Paul says, fight the good fight. I think so much today of our energy is uh, we are fighting each other over tertiary, secondary, really tertiary issues and splitting friendships over those. And we're taking away energy and resources from fighting for the important things, Mm -hmm. right? So you probably have this experience, Kyle, and I have this too. I have friends who agree on almost everything. Mm -hmm. The Venn diagram of their beliefs almost overlaps, but they don't speak to each other because they have fallen out over some tertiary thing. Yeah. You know, politics or whatever. And so I, I just... I think it's important for us to understand that. I think the theological triage is really, really an important thing for a Christian to understand. Yeah, I think it is. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that one of the things that the last uh, five, six years has demonstrated is that theological triage is crucial, but it does presume something. And it presumes that people have a working theological literacy, even on the essentials. Mm -hmm. You can't really begin Mm -hmm. to do triage unless you really know what it is that you're looking for as far as the essentials or the nuts and bolts or the bare minimum, so to speak, of what is essential to the Christian faith. Do you feel like a part of our, I oftentimes, when we talk about division in the church, we often, uh, or at least historically, I think the conversation has been around, um, there's division in the church because of nuanced theological opinions that are at odds with other nuanced theological opinions. I'm less convinced that is the presenting issue for most in our churches now. Am I wrong? I don't know that the division that we're finding and that we're seeing in churches or that I hear about in churches is most often a result of nuanced theological opinions that are at odds with one another. Like, I can't remember the last time somebody was like, listen, I got to know what Mosaic's view of the age of the earth is to be a member here. That I don't think that's ever happened at, at the church where I pastor, and I don't think it's happening at most churches. It does mm-hmm. seem like it is the social, cultural, and political perspectives yeah. that are the most divisive. Is that your read too after writing this book and thinking about this for a while? Yeah, I would agree, which is one of the things that really motivated me to write it because I'm just distressed by the fact that churches are splitting, not all of them, but many are, and Christians are really ending good friendships and fellowships over these things. And what I'm trying to say is, look, you may have a a serious disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ over how to exercise our politics. I think there's certain things all faithful Christians have to agree in terms of some of the cultural stuff. Like we all have, I think as a Christian, we have to believe in the sanctity of human life, right? I mean, we have to believe that marriages between men and women is just biblical, that male and female are good things. And, you know, in terms of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. But how do we exercise that in the marketplace? We may disagree on, you know, who's the best candidate or what is the best policy to pursue, or even what are we doing in our families and our lives? Do we homeschool our kids? Do we public school our kids? Do we edu- Those kinds of things, or even even got down to like during COVID, how do we how do we handle this as a church? Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult. And those are things where I want to say, 
you might have a very strong disagreement with your brother or sister in Christ. Sure. Like you have a strong opinion about this that you believe is is convictional. Is this worth splitting over? Is this worth losing a friendship over? And I just don't think it is. I think what love requires of us as as God's people is to love people who disagree with us. Love requires that, you know, we're in fellowship with people who we might disagree on a number of things. That That, you know, one of the things that really motivates me, I think what Jesus said in John 17, I think it's John 17 or maybe it's John 15. It's in that discourse in John that the world will know that we we are his by the way we love one another. And he says, this is my command I, to you, to love one another as I have loved you. Francis Schaeffer, mm-hmm. who was a, an amazing apologist in the 20th century, spoke truth to the culture, was unafraid, was prophetic to the church. He wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian, one of his last books. And he said, God has given the world the right the right to judge the validity of our faith by the way we love each other. Yeah. In other words, the world should look in on Christians and say, I don't I don't understand what they're saying. They believe some strange things, right? But man, look at the way they treat each other. Look the way right. they love each other. So the way we treat our brothers and sisters is an apologetic itself for the Christian faith. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. I think that's right. I think one of the things that is troubling is that the ethic of love is informed by the truth of Oh, gosh, the I say truth. I, say, I, I should say truths of Christian scripture. I mean, apart from that, they're grounding in reality. I mean, the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then they're just another collection of moral aphorisms to be picked up or discarded at whim and will. I do think that one of the things that's interesting is that in this time of trying to address the division that we see presenting itself in the lives of Christian, Christian relationships, Christian friendships, Christian families, and principally churches, I'm a little concerned that calls for unity will be a slippery slope to calls for compromise. And Mm -hmm. listen, I am a hundred percent on board with having 
confessional cores and churches with kind of an ecumenical sensibility and consciousness. I think that's a wise thing. I think it is good for local churches mm-hmm. to say, these are the essentials of the Christian faith. I fear that in our press for unity, that we could be drawn to two pitfalls. And you do address them in the book. And that's why I'm asking you this mm-hmm. question, because I think it'd be great for listeners to both know that these pitfalls exist and then to hear some of your just kind of rough thoughts on them, and then they can go to the book for more on it. But it seems like there are two kind of ditches on either side of this faithful road that we're trying to walk on. One is in the pursuit of unity to fall into the pit of compromise. Mm-hmm. The other one is in this pursuit of unity to fall into the uh, the pit of uniformity. Mm-hmm. And how do we walk this road in pursuit of a Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, witness-edifying pursuit of unity that doesn't have us end up in either this pit of compromise or this pit of uniformity? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would say for on the first one, compromise, I actually think because every generation has the very real threat of compromise, right? Like every generation has to retell the story of the gospel mm-hmm. and has to retell it to that generation like it's fresh and new to guard the good deposit of faith, Mm -hmm. as Paul told Timothy, to teach it. Because there's the threat of compromise and drift that we can't take lightly, it actually requires unity. Because if we we are segmented and fighting over, as Paul says, foolish and stupid questions— we are divided. You know, this, the enemy wants to divide us so that he we're not as effective. If if we're if we're divided over stupid things, we're not united over orthodoxy and truth. Then you know, heresy and falsehood will prevail. Sure. So we actually need more unity. I would also argue because the West is becoming, in many ways, more hostile to Christianity. There's actually more threats to the church mm-hmm. in terms of the cultural milieu that we're in. Sure. That actually requires more unity. I mean, think of who Paul is speaking to. Paul is on his way to being executed for his faith. Mm -hmm. He's speaking to the church, which is growing in the Roman Greco-Roman world, but it's still a very fringe minority. Sure, He's saying to that fringe minority, there's not that many of us. We need to stick together, Mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, we're going to be divided. You know, our unity is an apologetic for our faith. So I actually, I would argue, and I would say, that we can't assume that the next generation understands orthodoxy. We can't assume a biblical literacy that isn't there. So we need to teach what is true and right. And we need to take our time to teach that rather than dividing over stupid things. So that's, that answers the one question, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely right. Like a false view of unity is going to lead us into the ditch. And I would say heresy and heterodoxy is divisive. Sure. I mean, that is the divisive thing that hurts us, right? Mm-hmm. The other ditch of uniformity is also, you know, uh, something to be watched. Like we're not saying people need to, it's not sameness. You know, unity is not sameness. In fact, scripture calls us the body of Christ. We're compared to a body and the mm-hmm. body is made up of so many different parts sure. that look different, but yet they work together for the common good. We actually appreciate unity in our daily lives without recognizing it, Kyle. When I get up in the morning, if I have a stomach ache or a problem with my knee or something like that, there's one part of my body that is out of sync with the other. Sure. So there's a lack of unity and it affects my whole body. Yeah, that's right. Or when I get in my car, if my battery's not working or something, all those differing parts of that car that have to work together for that car to get me somewhere, yeah. if one of them's not working, I can't get... So we appreciate unity that way. It's It's... 
you actually appreciate unity more when there's a lot of difference, when there's a lot of people from different classes and tribes and nations and, and backgrounds coming together around the gospel. I do want to tell the listener here, one of the reasons I was interested, we get a lot of requests to have people on the show and, and there are a lot of good books being written and I'm grateful for it. I really am. This is not a call out on people that we don't have on the show. When Dan emailed and said, Hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking. The reason I thought, man, this is a good fit for kind of the culture of our audience is because knowing faith has tried to cultivate kind of an ethos and ethic and a culture of being certain about certain things and curious about everything else. And I do think that when we think about certainty, we think about conviction and we think about strength of conviction, there's a presumption that strength of conviction means we have firm, unyielding convictions on everything. And I, and I don't actually think that the call of scripture is for us to exercise the same degree of certainty about all matters with which we could consider. I think there are some things that the Bible is absolutely unequivocally clear about. And I think that there are times in the Christian pursuit of unity or mystery or the awareness of our own limitations where we get fuzzy about things the Bible is not fuzzy about. I was recently meeting with somebody um, who was dealing or just kind of thinking through, as many are, and rightfully so, thinking through questions of sexual ethics in the Christian faith and tradition. And they said, well, you know, the Bible is really kind of mysterious about many of these matters. I said, the Bible is mysterious about many matters. The Christian sexual ethic is not one of those things. Right. It's not. Absolutely. Um, in the same way that the Bible is mysterious about much of the mind of God. But it also tells us some things pretty concretely. It tells us who God is. It tells us uh, much of the manner of his character. It's not to say that we can exhaustively know all that there is to know about the mind of God, but we can know a sufficient enough degree to have a firm degree of confidence that when we describe him, we can describe him truthfully, accurately, and beneficially to those who hear it. And I do think that when we think about unity, I do think that as an audience and as kind of participants in trying to be people who pursue unity, who have a charitable and generous view of those who disagree with, which is kind of the ethic of all of our podcasts on this network, I do think that there is for us the temptation of going, okay, well, there's a lot more in that secondary and tertiary category than there is in that first or primary category. And I'm not saying that there is that those categories aren't well populated. I'm merely saying, and I think that Dan would agree, that it's really crucial for us to say, standing on the essentials, we now have an incredible degree of freedom to be curious to be generous with other viewpoints and other perspectives, but we don't like abandon that foundation of the essentials, go into a world of the unknown and then say, great, you know, now we're going to pursue unity from here. I think the best foundation for the pursuit of unity is actually a foundation of the right convictions to have. If, am, I, am I off on this, Dan, or am I picking up kind of where you're trying to take us? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I think orthodoxy is is our home base. And, you know, I love G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. You know, like people feel like there's, I just read an article a couple of days ago of someone who said he's escaping his evangelical up, upbringing because it was so confining. And I'm like, mm. actually, orthodoxy is freeing, right? Yeah. When you actually interact with folks who say that, that everything's, everything, you know, I grew up with so much certainty and now I'm leaning into the mystery. Everything's mysterious. And you could just sort of question everything away. If you dig, people actually don't have as much mystery as they claim. Sure. They have certain certainties. And in fact, they're very fundamentalist about those certainties. Right. 
especially like the idea of when people say there's nothing certain in scripture, you know, we, you know, when we talk about orthodoxy, well, there's nothing they can be sure of, but they're very sure that there's nothing to be sure of. Sure. So when people make those claims, Kyle, they're actually just moving from one foundation to another, from one set of orthodoxies to another, right? Because, you know, the nature of human nature is they're, they're not truly, you know, Keller would talk about this in, in New York, like in terms of the fact that there's no truth or there, you know, everything's up for grabs. No one actually lives that way, right? And so what I would say is why not stand on the sure foundation that we know right. that tells us what we know about God that's true and good and beautiful that has been given to us by Christians for 2,000 years. Well, Dan, maybe just in your parting word to the listener, what's one reason that you, or what's one reason that people should pick up this book? Like, what's one thing that you'd be like, gosh, if it just hits this group of people, I'll be thrilled. You know, if you're someone who has felt like, man, I've seen in my family, my community, my church, a lot of division, a lot of, a lot of animosity, a lot of that, like, how do I deal with it? What is it? What does it mean to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? I have a first chapter talks about love and about friendship. I also have a chapter in there on forgiveness. And I, and I talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't, how to overcome that. If you're someone who has been hurt by the church, I, I talk about church hurt, like what, how to overcome that. And then, you know, one of my favorite chapters is one on cynicism. I think cynicism about the church and about what God is doing in the world is almost its own genre and its own cottage industry mm, as right. if, you know, God's best days are behind him yep. as if the Holy spirit is not regenerating hearts today as right. if, you know, Jesus isn't save, saving today. And look, we have scandal. We have things we have to clean up in our own house. We don't want to overlook that, yep. but God is at work today in the world and Christ loves his body. That's right. You know, Christ loves his bride. He loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus doesn't just tolerate the church. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just sit sit by. The, he's not just sitting there with his you know eye roll saying, "Can you believe I have to be with these people?" That's right. He loves the church, and yet there's such a deep cynicism. It's it's its own cottage industry of, you know, if if you say here's some good things evangelicals are doing, you're almost laughed out of the room. Yeah. And that I'm here to say that you know c- cynicism is not a spiritual gift, and I think we have to resist that. So. Those are some of the things I really care about. I divide the book into worthy virtues and worthy fights. Mm-hmm. Here's the things that are important to adopt as virtues. And here's here's the fights worth having. I love it. Dan, hey, really appreciate you making time to join us and to join our listeners today. Thank you. Well, Kyle, thank you for having me. Love the work you're doing and uh, thankful for the way that you serve the body of Christ. Appreciate it. Listen, you can pick up Agents of Grace from wherever books are sold. It is out and available now. If you want to find out how you can help us continue to create resources for the good of the church, you can go to trainingthechurch.com slash support. We actually have our signups open for the fall cohort that JT, Jen, and myself run for church leaders on thinking through a philosophy of ministry that aims for deep discipleship. That cohort is open and available. I think we have one spot left for the fall cohort. So if you were looking to apply, go ahead and apply now. Be on the lookout for more summer surprise episodes. And if you haven't already, consider joining us for our live recording of Knowing Faith, the Gospel Coalition. This fall, go over to the Gospel Coalition's website and then get y'all signed up over there. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.